welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hey, I'm Don Wells, the founder and CEO of Onfolio Holdings. We are a publicly traded portfolio of online businesses. We buy businesses that we want to hold forever, and we have a, a range of companies in our portfolio from agencies to some software businesses to some online courses and uh yeah that's me i love it thanks so much for coming on the remote work drive podcast dom i feel like i've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while and i'm super excited to finally be able to chat with you on this episode so to kind of just dive right in what's the most exciting thing you're up to right now well the most exciting thing I think for us, it's finding different ways to allow investors to co-invest with us in our deals. I think we've been changing the structure a little bit over time. And um, uh, aside from that, we're seeing a lot of exciting opportunities to really just grow our portfolio and work with founders who are excited to kind of join the family and and see see ways of growing their uh, their business. So it's very polar opposite things really but yeah those are the two yeah I love it I want to kind of dive into both of those topics a little bit more but given the state of the kind of the industry right now and it seems very like no one's really quite sure what's happening what are you kind of seeing from both a wanting to acquire companies as well as on both sides of the market yeah I think it's interesting so I just did a little bit of content about this myself and I said we're not quite in a a seller's a buyer's market yet um but so uh, let me just explain that term a bit so historically the marketplaces and the the M&A activity for online businesses has always been very favorable towards sellers because there's not a lot of good businesses for sale there's there's been a ton of capital trying to buy online businesses and so sellers really saw every year the the prices went up as demand went up and supply didn't really ever meet it. So if you were selling your business, you might get, say, I don't know, anywhere from four to five times earnings in 2021. And you would probably receive a large chunk of that up front. And if somebody didn't offer it like that, then you could just wait and somebody else would buy your business for more favorable terms in a short period of time. But then with the increase in interest rates and just general nervousness that everybody has around the economy, um, that's changed. And so sellers now have to be a little bit more creative, maybe take less of the cash up front, uh, definitely take less total uh, consideration and price for their business. But at the same time, like the good businesses, the best businesses will always be will always fetch a good price. So it's not like sellers are, are desperate and they have to accept whatever terms they can get. And a lot of businesses are still earning well. So again, these aren't really distressed businesses that are going on the market. So it's not it's not like it's been maybe in other other asset classes in decades gone by where there was a lot of like distressed assets. So it's it's interesting because for buyers it means there's probably more opportunities, but maybe buyers themselves have less access to money in the first place. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but so, somebody explained real estate to me recently. And they said, if you look at 
for example, somewhere like Austin, Texas, where or any city really, but the, it's it's kind of like a spiral. And in the center of the city is the best real estate, the most expensive real estate. And then as you go out of the spiral and you get further and further out into, say, the suburbs, those prices rose as well during the boom that we saw over the last 20, 10 years because people are just chasing after returns. So they'll accept, they'll pay more and more for houses that are even further away from the city center because they're just basically greedy and hungry for inventory. And then when the market collapses, it's the places that are further away that start to drop in price. But the ones really in the center of downtown are always going to be in demand because there's just such a limited supply of them. And so I think it's the same with online business where the kind of mediocre businesses or even just the average businesses won't fetch the same price as they did before because the spiral kind of starts to go back towards the center. But if you're someone who's got a really good business, maybe one of the top businesses out there, and you are thinking, oh no, it's a terrible time to sell, I would say that's not necessarily the case because there's not many good businesses like yours out there. Well said. How has kind of all of the market conditions affected, you know, kind of your view um, and what you are up to, what you and your team are up to at Unfolio? It took a little bit longer to happen than I realized, but probably six months ago, I, I, I started noticing a lot of opportunities where there are just sellers who are struggling to find buyers for their business. And maybe these these are not A plus grade assets, but maybe they're B plus, which is still a decent business. So for us, we're seeing just more opportunities to to partner with founders and maybe instead of buy 100% of the business, buy 80% or buy 51% and just structure something a little bit more creatively like that. But also, I've started talking about agencies a lot over the last six months and how I really enjoy agencies. And um, as a result of that, a lot of agency founders have started reaching out to me. So I think we've got some some good opportunities to build some pretty big uh, holdings in in the kind of online business, like agency B2B services space. That's super interesting because whenever you talk to, I feel like that's almost the opposite of what everyone hears, where it's like agencies have the worst multiples and are oftentimes the hardest to sell. Can you maybe explain a little bit why you guys have kind of really leaned into that niche? Uh, well, yeah, I, I actually agree <laughs> that they are the hardest to sell and they're, they're some of the hardest to buy as well, which kind of makes sense. I don't know. I think I'm leaning into it now because it's a little bit of a counter positioning thing. And so it, it gives us an advantage because so many people don't want to touch agencies. That is potentially an advantage for us just to be be willing to do the hard work. But my very first business was an agency. Well, it was a productized service, but I use the agency uh, label quite broadly because I'm used to speaking to people that maybe don't understand what a productized service is. I think your audience probably know the difference. But um, And then my second business was a little bit of a productized service, but more of an agency. And then one of our first acquisitions was a productized service and an SEO link building company. And then since then, we've acquired probably three or four more, um, either agencies or productized services. And they're always a mess when you buy them. That's why they're so difficult to buy. Usually, sometimes the team is remote and there's no culture really. And the the founder has really been doing a poor job of growing the business over the last six to 12 months and they're exhausted and they, you know, or they've just kind of switched off mentally. 
yeah when you when you take over this business you just sometimes you think well this isn't really a business this is just a website and a, some google sheets and some automations but when we were looking at our returns across all of our assets and we looked at all of our agencies and they were always consistently in the top like let's say we uh, the top five performing businesses four of them were agencies and we only owned four agencies and we were like huh that's interesting and i think they're a lot more resilient as well you can pivot an agency and sure some people have said to me well you shouldn't buy a business that needs to pivot but i think that's that's naive i think most online businesses need to pivot at some point and so i think for us maybe because we approach them we approach MA less from a kind of theoretical spreadsheet basis and more from a well what are we actually comfortable with area and we just realized that we are actually just quite comfortable with agencies and i wish it wasn't the case i wish we were really good at SaaS, <laughs> but you kind of have to go with what you're good at um and so i think we've kind of stumbled upon an advantage that we have over over other buyers absolutely so you when you go in and you acquire an agency how do you, what are some of the first things that you and your team do to kind of make sure team building and culture of that agency, you know, is still kind of somewhat there and can continue to want and, you know, doesn't just completely all disintegrate when the agency was sold and acquired? Yeah, uh, a lot of that, you kind of have to do that in the due diligence period as well. And if you can't get really comfortable with that, maybe this isn't an agency that that you are going to buy basically but a large part of it is decentralization and so when we acquire an agency it's not us that are going to be running it the agency is going to be running itself separately and so the only real change we'll make is maybe we'll hire an external ceo to come in and, and run that agency uh not always maybe the 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 current founder wants to stay on or maybe the current founders already replaced themselves with a ceo those are way more uh, attractive and we'll probably pay more for them as well and sometimes you can promote someone internally but that's we've really had mixed bags doing that um i think one of our current best gms out there is someone we promoted internally and they're they're, they're crushing it frankly but the person they replaced was also someone we promoted internally who almost drove the business into the ground and you kind of don't know which one you're going to get. So the ideal situation is there's someone in the, in the company already, or there's someone you can promote internally, but you have to be prepared that that may not work. So then when you bring someone in from the outside, yeah, you have to think, what is this person going to do to the business? Are they going to gel well with the existing team? Are they going to improve the team and empower them and level them up? Or are they going to, really create conflict and so again if we try to find these candidates and bring them in as quickly as possible uh, even before we buy the business so that we can kind of get a sense for that but one example is so for example when we bought content elect they had a i think almost entirely south african based team and we bought the business from a south african so when we were looking at candidates we hired a south african to be the new gm and we looked at non-South Africans as well. And I think we got to two finalists and one of them seemed slightly better, but was also South African. So we thought, okay, that seems like a no-brainer. Um, and he's worked out pretty well. And so um, now in terms of like the second part of your question, what, what are the first things we do? Um, it really, again, it depends on um, 
uh, you know, is somebody coming in? If they're coming in, we really just want them to spend the first few months learning the the team and seeing what areas there are for improvement. Usually a business such as this has a big email list that has been neglected. So they might start trying to do customer win back campaigns and learning from existing customers. You know, what didn't you like about the old setup or what was great? You know, what are your, what are your fears that we're going to change? And then, you know, learning about the team as well. Often the team has been neglected by for a few months because the seller's just been kind of mentally checked out. And so quite often the team will embrace having someone come in with, with a growth mindset and slightly more professionalized systems. Um, again, a lot of founders struggle with, I think, I don't know, it's just kind of like being first time business owners. I think most people don't start an agency as like their fifth business. They start as their first business. And so um, what that often means is you have a team that have maybe been under trained or under i don't know underutilized under catered for and so it's really like (laughs) coming in figuring out where the band-aids are and what the best way is to to fix them and so that's again something we optimize for when we're hiring a gm is like how sensitive are they to those those um those dynamics um as a as a team leader Okay, I have a lot of follow-up questions to like all the stuff you just shared there. Starting first with someone who maybe is unfamiliar with it, what's kind of the main differences in your view of a general manager versus a CEO? And when do you need one versus the other? Yeah, I mean, I've used the term interchangeably already on this podcast. And sometimes the different titles do get mixed up. I think it's a little bit of a level of professionalization. It's like having a COO versus a like a director of operations. Sometimes it's really just a title, the difference, and sometimes it's it's like a fundamental difference. So I think really a, a general manager probably doesn't, they basically run the business themselves, but maybe they don't quite take ownership of everything. Uh, whereas a CEO is a lot more autonomous. So general managers might have autonomy within a framework that's been created for them, whereas a CEO probably should be building their own frameworks. But it's also sometimes it's just superficial. You know, if we hire a CEO, we're going to have to pay more than if we hire a general manager, but they might be doing the same thing. So, you know, I've kind of got thoughts on this, but we've gone back and forth on how we describe them. At one point, we decided to start calling them all CEOs because we just felt like we would attract higher level candidates and hire um, a kind of more experienced person, um, whereas a general manager might attract a more employee mindset person. Really, I think it's kind of arbitrary, I think. Um, certainly in, in the kind of, you know, $5 million revenue online business range, it's not really a huge difference. A lot of us call ourselves CEOs when we're not really CEOs. That's a whole nother conversation. You've said multiple times now that it's almost always better, that it's usually better if there's someone you can promote from within the business to be that GM or that CEO. What are some of the traits and or kind of skills that you look for that kind of signal this person might be a good candidate to be promoted to GM, for example? Yeah, sometimes it's instinctive, but I think it's, let me just think about what stood out. I think the reason internal hires do better particularly as if we've just acquired a business is they just have familiarity with the business they 
they have a sense of, I guess, a sense of agency, not, you know, using the other meaning of the word, a sense of ownership of the business. And they have so much familiarity with the products. So one reason the current GM of the business we promoted who is crushing it is doing so well is because he knows exactly how much it costs every service. So he knows exactly how much they can charge and still get good margins. And so when he's doing a sales pool, he can really tailor the services to to what the client needs. And he knows like, yeah, we can do that or no, we can't do that. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to do a bad job if we try and do that. And that gives pros and uh, not pros and cons, but the, the, the pros of that are often a new person might come in and think, oh, well, the company doesn't really do that. So I'm not going to do it. Or they might think, oh yeah, if we start offering this new service, we need to build out systems. And it's more of a, uh, like turning a slow ship. Whereas someone who's in the business, can just know exactly what the team can deliver and they know kind of what they're going to do a poor job of. In addition, they they normally will have been promoted because they've shown a sense of leadership. They've shown that the team will respond to them. You know, the team aren't going to get jealous if you come in and promote that person. And they, you know, maybe they started out as like a customer support person, maybe not, but it's really about a balance of deep expertise and i think the reason we decentralize our businesses is because it's not really on us to decide what is the best thing for the business for the customer because we're not close enough to it whereas and that's the same challenge somebody has who's coming into the business they have to spend probably the first year really understanding the audience uh, and the client base and so the reason internal hires do so well is because they're just so entrenched and they have such embedded knowledge of of the company and the service. The risks are a lot of people can't make that step up from being, you know, in the business to running on the business. Maybe they don't have good management skills. Maybe when they change from being a colleague to a boss, the dynamic shifts too much. Uh, maybe they they're great at operations but terrible at sales. So the person who we hired, who we promoted before this person, they actually started out as kind of the project manager for just one division in the company. I think there were two main divisions and they really demonstrated a real high sense of quality and really wanting to improve the operations. And so we initially promoted them to COO of the business and they cleaned up everything and they really improved all of the teams and they, they were just a really outstanding performer. And then the CEO of that business, I then promoted to COO of the entire company uh, of Onfolio. So then we said, great, the COO of this business would make a fantastic CEO of that business. Like she's already made the step up once. Can can it happen again? And I think that's where it started falling apart for us and for her was she was really good at operations, but not so great at sales and uh, managing the entire company and just... I don't know, things just started going wrong. And so it's really hard to just list off a bunch of traits and say, that's what we'd look for because somebody can tick all those boxes and then, you know, maybe they step up and, and they just can't, they can't do it. I think you look at like professional sports as well. You see the same thing. Like somebody could be a fantastic college football player and then they, they, they you know, they, they tick all the boxes but then they just can't make that step up to the NFL. Um, and equally, you might have someone like Brock Purdy who goes undrafted or is the final pick of the draft and just 
doesn't seem that good, but then he had an outstanding rookie perform uh, season. And so you have to really give people that chance, but you also just have to understand that until you see how somebody does, you just have no real way of knowing. And so um, it's a horrible answer to have to give, <laughs> but it's unfortunately the reality. Yeah, I can definitely understand. It's kind of like the Peter principle in action, which is people are going to get promoted up into the level where they kind of reach their ceiling. Are there things you can do, like if you find yourself in that situation where you maybe promoted someone to a level where now they're no longer the roster they once were, are there ways you've been able to kind of salvage that and like move them into another division? Or is it really always having to have that uncomfortable conversation of, hey, let's maybe get you a better fit somewhere else? I think all of the above is possible. Uh, We have had people we've promoted outside their area of competence, and then we've either just really had to do a lot of hand-holding until they become competent, or we've moved them to a different business. And sometimes that's just kind of a polite way of moving them on. But sometimes they actually do really well in a different environment. So maybe they were like right person, wrong seat or something. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. That person either quits or you kind of have to have to let them go. And that's, you know, I think there's a lot of people probably everywhere in the world in any size and shape of company who don't get promoted because the person fears like, you know, you're the world's best number two. And if I promote you to number one and it doesn't work, I've lost the world's best number two, you know? And and I think that's unfair because you know everybody should be given the chance. You can't be punished for being exceptional, but that. I think just comes from the reality that sometimes, yeah, people get promoted and it doesn't work out and then they get moved on. But if they're really talented people, then they're going to move on and crush it somewhere else. So you kind of have to be a little bit pragmatic about it. Yeah, that's such, yeah. A, that's such an important thing and something that's so often overlooked. I do want to shift gears just a little bit and talk about the other side of it, which is when you're hiring it, when you know you're going to have to go outward and bring in an external CEO, I'm just going to imagine that's probably one of the hardest jobs on the planet to fill. What are some of the things that you look for or that your team looks for when it comes down to trying to find the right CEO for one of the companies? Um, The homework really starts before we even try and find people and start talking to candidates. And it's really trying to understand what type of CEO we need for that business. So there's a lot of these smaller businesses, whether they're agencies or courses or whatever, where it might be more of a sales gig or it might be more of a marketing gig or it might be more of a product gig. So so for example, Ravi, who is the head of our WordPress uh, subsidiary, he he's good at marketing, he's good at sales, but he also has a very strong product understanding. And if I say, hey, I've got an idea for a WordPress plugin, he can, you know, understand whether it's actually a good idea or not. And um, usually it's not, but he'll do the research and he'll he'll understand about doing an MVP and the costs and everything. So that's super important. Whereas the head of an agency maybe needs to be a little bit more operation minded, uh, maybe a little bit more sales and uh, they need to think about product margins and uh, deliverability and you know is their team capable of fulfilling certain things they probably need to be a little bit more like uh, people oriented and then a course business probably they need to be more marketing focused Uh, maybe they need to have a bit of a more paid traffic knowledge and understanding of funnels and sure you can work with agencies to do this you can hire a, a cmo or an mvp of marketing uh, sorry, VP of marketing. Um, 
but you need to have those fundamental understandings. And so, you know, the, the first step is, okay, what kind of person are we looking for? And it might be someone who's an, like an exact replica of the outgoing founder or CEO, or it might be someone that is completely the opposite. It really just depends on the state of the business. So once you know that, it, it's a lot easier. Uh, so you can create a job post and, and so on. And then the interview process is more or less the same each time. But again, you're, 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 you're looking for signs of those hard skills and soft skills based on the business that you, that you want. Um, but you also have to be a little bit open-minded because these people are smart. They're usually smarter than you are, definitely smarter than I am. <laughs> and um, so sometimes it's like, well, tell me what type of job you think this is. Like, do you think it's a sales gig? Do you think it's operations? Based on your somewhat limited knowledge of the business from the outside looking in, what do you think qualifies you to to do it? And you have to listen to their answers, but also kind of see how they approach that question. Fortunately, I'm not the one who does the hiring. This is what Esby does. And also Adam, our COO, they, they kind of tag team it. And Esby's got a lot of good intuition. So I don't know exactly, you know, that all the different questions they do, but they, they're really, that's kind of what they're optimizing for. You know, what kind of person do we want or do we think we want? And then let's figure out the, the pros and cons of, um, of the candidates we've got in front of us. So we, we, in your experience, is it better, you know, to hire someone as a CEO who's a first-time CEO? Or do you kind of always look for people who've been a CEO in other organizations? Maybe even ones that are even very similar to the one that you're hiring for. It's really a budget decision because a lot of the businesses we buy, maybe, you know, we can only hire someone for, say, 100K a year. So you're probably going to be looking at a first-time CEO for that or a second-time CEO with a point to prove and someone who wants more upside or something like that. But we, we kind of go back and forth on this. Sometimes we think we need to find like a kind of scrappy growth hacker type person and and promote them or hire them. Sometimes we want someone who's done it before. Sometimes we want someone who maybe hasn't done it before, but they've got uh, oodles of experience. But yeah, it really just depends on the budget. If you can hire someone for 300K a year, then you get someone who's done it before in the exact same company, like not the exact same company, but a similar company in a similar industry. If you can't afford that, maybe you need to take more of a leap of faith on a first timer. Yeah, that's super interesting. And let's just say budget was no object. Do you think having a higher budget kind of eliminates some of the risk of that CEO not working out or is still some of that risk just inherent given the fact that it is such a pivotal and tricky role to hire for? I don't know. <laughs> I think it, it I think it eliminates some of the risk, sure, but you don't want someone who just wants a kind of fat salary. You you do need you need someone who's going to care if the business declines and they're going to be spending their weekend thinking about what they can do to turn it around. So even if you give someone a good budget, you still need to not make it a hundred percent salary focused. Um so yeah, if you if budget's no option, then it eliminates some of the risk, but there's still risk involved in the incentives that that person has. So when you're hiring for like a really smart, talented GM or CEO, who let's just say, you know, has other options, what are some of the, and could even just, you know, tomorrow go off and start their own business. What are some of the ways that you keep them motivated and obviously keep them happy enough to want to continue to keep working in that role? I think if, 
you know, we were in DC London together, I think two or three years ago, and someone asked this question to Mark Webster and they said, how do you motivate your A players? And I, I kind of said to myself, maybe a bit facetiously, if they need motivation, then they're probably not an A player. So I think there's plenty of people out there who are very talented and very still hungry and have plenty of options. But if they've decided that they want to work with you, then the only thing that's going to demotivate them is if you kind of have not fulfilled something from your end. So maybe you haven't given the, them the autonomy that you said, or maybe they don't have the, the growth budgets that you said, uh, or or maybe you know some other way that you haven't maybe represented something or just the reality's changed. I think if someone's going to keep jumping ship every time, then maybe they weren't the right person for the job in the first place. So I think there is there's people out there who are not just motivated by money they're motivated by building something together and they're motivated by loyalty you know that said sure there are still people out there who they're amazing and they get they get maybe they get offers from even more amazing companies um and so what can you do really well sure you can give them profit share or you can give them phantom equity or you can give them stock options in in your company we try not to give people equity in the business they're running um because well we like the flexibility of not having given them equity we'd rather give them bonuses or equity in the holding company so that everyone's bought into the the bigger picture but um uh, for someone who's just got one business they can consider giving someone equity in it as well um and that equity can vest or it can be clawed back if somebody jumps ship um that's the kind of modern way of doing it that makes a ton of sense. And I could continue talking about this for a while, but as I know, we're kind of getting up against uh, the hour. I did want to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Okay. So to start out, if you were a tour operator for a day on any niche topic, but it can't be about building businesses at all, just any other niche topic, what would you give a tour on and why? Does it have to be a tour to a place? or? Uh, nope, I'm living intentionally very big. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um I think I think for me it would probably be learning how to lean into what you're good at as opposed to trying to fix what you suck at. Um cuz uh, that's something I've had to really embrace over the years. Well said. And if you could trade wives with any historical figure from any time period, who would you be and why? For a second I thought you said wives. <laughs> Okay. Um, I think Winston Churchill would be quite interesting. Uh, and why? Oh, and why? Um, well, obviously he achieved great things, but I think he probably got a harder... He, he gets a lot of criticism as well, and I think it would have been just... What, what I'd like to do is not necessarily trade lives, so maybe I'm cheating a bit here, but but be in his life, but sort of as an observer that would be really interesting. Like, I don't know if I necessarily would want to, you know, run run the empire while fighting the Nazis. That probably wouldn't have been fun, but um, I, I'd like to be more like a sort of fly on the wall inside his mind or something. So uh, I think that would be fascinating. Absolutely. And what's an unconventional skill you have that you're really, that you're secretly very proud of? <laughs> This is very relevant. Um, I, I can I can write poems very quickly, very easily. 
so I, 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 on Friday, I was on stage at the Chiang Mai SEO conference and I decided, I don't know, uh, about a week before that I was going to finish with a poem. 12 hours before my talk, I hadn't even written it. I'd had a few like sentences in my head that I was like, oh, maybe I could rhyme this word with that word. And I sat down, I don't know, like midnight and I was going on stage at 10 a.m. the next morning and I sat down and I wrote it and I wrote it in about 30 minutes. Um, and again, without sounding arrogant, like it was it was a pretty good poem. And um, afterwards, people asked me how much ChatGPT or AI I used. And I said none. And they were like, why? And I was like, well, it kind of would have slowed me down. I wrote a poem by myself in 30 minutes. And uh, I find it's kind of a useless skill. <laughs> it doesn't really help me apart from getting jokes on stage. But I, I'm pretty proud of it. That's awesome. It's been really great chatting with you on the Remote Work Drive podcast. Where can listeners find you online? Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, so my Twitter is Dom Wells on Folio and my LinkedIn is probably the same. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, people can follow me there. Awesome. And we'll make sure to link to those in the show notes. Um, thank you again for coming on the Remote Work Drive podcast, Dom. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.